Welcome to the CPA Success Podcast, helping you be more successful at work and in your life. Each week, we profile topics and speakers that are influential in your world. Here are your hosts, Jen Nicholson and Blair Cook. Welcome to the CPA Success Podcast. I'm Blair Cook. And I'm Jen Nicholson. Today, Blair interviewed a fantastic leader in the CPA world, uh, Carol Hansel. She's founder and senior partner of Hansel LLP. She now leads an independent firm dedicated to advising boards, management teams, institutional shareholders, and regulators in connection with legal and governance challenges. Carol was inducted to as a fellow of the Institute of Corporate Directors in 2013 and received a Lifetime Achievement Award in Investor Relations in 2015. Let's listen in. Welcome, Carol. Thank you very much. Well, today we're going to talk about kind of the legal perspectives of the board of directors and probably more specifically around the audit committees, which a number of CPA members are obviously involved in in all sectors, whether they're public, corporate, or not-for-profit. And so to get us started today, let's just talk about kind of the basics of becoming a director uh, and maybe some of the legal considerations that CPA members should keep in mind when they are asked to serve on a, uh, a board of directors. Well, thank you. The expectations of people, uh, companies, shareholders, regulators, all stakeholders have of directors is that they will be thoroughly prepared for meetings, will participate actively and constructively in meetings of the board or the audit committee, as the case may be, and that they will keep the business affairs and challenges of the corporation on their minds between board meetings. So depending on the size and complexity of the organization, that can actually be a very heavy load. You also asked about liabilities. They can be so blindingly extensive that there is no reason that anyone would ever serve on a board in concept. From a practical perspective, The law is actually set up to inspire people to behave in a particular way, not to try to drive into their bank accounts. So there is good guidance in the law and in regulation. And there is, at least in Canada, if I can use public companies as an example, relatively few situations in which directors are held personally liable, outside directors are held personally liable for something that went on in the corporation. So we shouldn't, uh, as a starting point, shouldn't be afraid to serve on the boards just because of potential legal liabilities. But what are the sorts of legal liabilities that directors are uh, responsible for? When you look at it from from an audit committee perspective, we worry about financial reporting. We particularly worry about that reporting in the context of an offering, a prospectus offering, or when you're when you're encouraging people to buy shares based on the financial statements. That's where a fair amount of exposure could come from for an audit committee member. Beyond that, there are a number of statutes that have public policy purposes behind them. So environmental legislation, for example, is geared towards incentivizing people to take care of the environment. So they're required to take all reasonable care to make sure that certain things do or don't happen that are protective of the environment. We do the same thing with occupational health health and safety. That's an important public policy goal. From another perspective, because government makes the laws, government will hold directors personally liable where source deductions aren't handed over to the government. So the, the idea is it's not the company's money. You took it from the employees, typically, or from a supplier in the case of GST. You're supposed to give it to the government, and the government will come after you if they don't get it. But beyond that, really what directors, I, I think, mostly worry about are is whether they are personally the guarantors of the corporation's conduct. And the answer to that, very broadly, is no, they're not. 
if let's say I'm just a, I'm a member, I've been asked to serve on, on a board, is, is there some legal due diligence that I should do just ahead of time? And perhaps where could I get just uh, you know, a briefer as to more information around my, my legal obligation? So in, in terms of the diligence that somebody should do before they go on a board, if it's a public company, it's relatively easy because there is a, in terms of disclosure, because there's a lot of disclosure in the public domain. And you should, of course, read that. CPA members will probably have a more, a cast more critical eye on the financial statements. Many will understand the financial statements differently or better than non-CPA members would when they're joining a board. The, the toughest thing really to get your arms around mentioned two things, actually. The first is reputation of the corporation. Typically, people are very flattered to be asked to serve on a board, and they don't spend enough time asking about what the reputation of the corporation is. So if the director's values and the corporation's values don't align, that makes for an unhappy situation for everyone involved. The other thing that is challenging but important for directors to address is who else is on the board. So you want to make sure that when you're going through difficult situations, you're working, this is group work, essentially, you're working as part of a group. You want to make sure that the people that you are relying on and that you're working through problems with are people who you're going to interact with well and who are going to be constructive contributors to any problem that you're trying to address. And this, it's an interesting issue because when you think about there's a legal liability associated, but I know if you're associated with, a, with an organization that uh, fails, for whatever reason, you know, there are there. Can you discuss perhaps what are the other implications? Uh, like I know uh, there's certain I'm going to say black marks that would show on your disclosures with uh, regular regulators. There are requirements for directors to disclose, for example, if they have served on the board of a company that went under, so to speak. I have to say, I, I think for the most part, those disclosures, I, I'm not really sure that they're perceived of as being no. black marks because you, 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 there's lots of directors who have, have served the corporation and the stakeholders very well by agreeing to remain on the board. And we're lucky to have people who are prepared to continue to serve up until the point that the enterprise gets handed over to a receiver. So I, I think a lot of people take a more, I hope they do, take a more evolved approach that and say, well, good for them. They, you know, they, they saw the corporation all the way through the crisis. What are the courses of avenue that directors take? You said it's, it's very noble of a lot of directors to stay on the board right up to the point of an insolvency agent being appointed. But do all directors tend to do that? I think it always depends on circumstances. So when, the, when a, a company is going through a financial crisis, it may be that certain members of the board, there's a lot of time required in dealing with those, those issues. And not every director has that kind of time available. And, it, and beyond that, it may be more helpful to the corporation to recruit new directors who have actually been through those situations before. So I wouldn't necessarily read anything into it that somebody gets off the board before it goes all the way to insolvency. But it's a, it's a tough road for the directors who do stay on. There are some situations in which it's important for directors to get separate advice. So I, I, I would never say to directors, look, you, need, you always need to have a lawyer beside you because you never know what could happen. That's not practical or, or frankly necessary. But when it comes to something like insolvency, where there, there could be personal liability to close, close to directors, the interests of the directors are actually different than the interests of the corporation, and they should be getting separate advice to make sure that they're properly covered. Other types of situations would directors or audit committee members, you know, when should they seek outside counsel on, on certain matters? What sort of matters might those be? There are many situations in which the board should be relying on either the general counsel or, or the outside counsel that the corporation normally uses. So there are lots of those situations. There are, however, situations where management may have, or certain members of management may have an interest in the outcome. So let me give you another example. Aside from insolvency, 
if a CEO or another member of senior management is the subject of an investigation or is somehow Im- implicated in a whistleblower scenario, it's very difficult for outside the general counsel or regular outside counsel to advise the board because, of course, they report to the CEO on a regular basis. And so it's an awkward position for the board to be in. It's also not a very good position for the CEO to be in because no matter what happens, it's also not a good position for counsel to be in. Counsel will be in the position of either being accused of whitewashing the investigation or if they're going to wound the CEO, they may as well kill him. And that's what CEOs should worry about. So it's not in anybody's interest, not in the board's interest, and certainly not in the executive's interest to have counsel running that kind of investigation that have allegiances to the people who are being investigated. That's when they should bring in the outside counsel. Right. Takeover bids, change of control transactions, that would be another example. Financial restatement issues, another example. Anything that is reputation challenging to the organization because you want to separate the people who brought the vision forward from the people who have the oversight for it. Uh, another important aspect of this, this legal liability is, of course, directors and officers' uh, insurance. Mm-hmm. And perhaps you could just explain what kind of protection that policy provides to a director. Directors should make sure that they have appropriate coverage in place. And I'll talk about what appropriate is. But let me first say why it's important to have it. Directors will invariably have indemnities from from the corporation. They will typically have them in the bylaws, but directors should make sure that they have very thorough contractual indemnity. So if you don't have a contractual indemnity, you should make sure that you go and get one. Which simply means that the corporation would would repay you for any out-of-pocket expenses or any lawsuits filed against you, that sort of thing? Exactly. So what an indemnity, usually the exposure for directors is that they are being sued with or without merit, but they're being sued and the legal expenses can be quite significant. It's Whether or not the director is successful in the defense, and typically they are, but whether or not they're they're successful, you have to pay your lawyers on an ongoing basis. And that is a huge cash flow issue for most directors. So you want to make sure that you've got an indemnity that that doesn't require directors to be out of pocket with respect to those expenses. So the indemnity is fine as long as the corporation is in a position to honor it. If, for example, the corporation is insolvent, still need to have your legal fees paid that's where you're going to be very relieved that you had appropriate DNO insurance. And how do you think about just how much uh, DNO coverage should a corporation carry for its directors and officers? How do you advise clients in making that determination? When that question comes up, I ask to speak to the broker. So insurance is an experience-based enterprise. The broker will be able to tell the directors what the exposures typically are in that industry for a company of that size and complexity. And we'll be able to tell directors what comparable companies buy for their directors. So if, for example, one experience I had was in asking the broker, uh, asking the company how much insurance they had for the directors, and the company said $25 million. And I said, and what did the broker recommend you get? And they said $50 million. And so not surprisingly, the new directors wouldn't go on the board until this company got $50 million of insurance. Yes. So the broker is... There are very excellent lawyers who advise on DNO insurance, but on those kinds of issues, I would go and speak to the broker. But what the other thing is the marketplace changes in terms of what's available, and you want to make sure that you're availing yourself of the most attractive offerings that DNO insurers make available. Now, certainly we see a lot of DNO insurance policies in kind of the corporate world. Is it in the nonprofit world as well? Is it prudent to have uh, DNO policies? It, or? It, it's, al- it's always prudent. Where the risk is low, the premiums will be low. 
So if the premiums are astronomical, I, I would ask, I, I'd seriously ask why they're that high. Uh, let's change tack now and start talking about what you see as some of the current legal challenges confronting you know, boards and, and more specifically audit committees? What are the issues that uh, you're being called on more and more these days to advise on? One of the things that has really changed in the world of governance is the role that shareholders play in the governance of the organization. So shareholders, particularly in Canada, are very sophisticated. They deal directly with the companies in which they invest. They understand strategy and governance. And, and if they have a point of view, board should be listening to them. And uh, again, more in the corporate world, but you, are you seeing a lot of uh, shareholder activism? Is that creating uh, legal challenges for, for boards? When we talk about shareholder activism, I think typically what people mean is an investor who takes a stake in, in the corporation in order to make a change and then gets out after a short period of time. That kind of activity goes up and down. So there are sometimes more, sometimes less in a given proxy season. I think what we what corporations really deal with is active shareholders or engaged shareholder. That That's more of the constant rhythm of the organization. So boards are more directly engaged with shareholders than they ever have been. Shareholders are generally respectful of the kinds of things that they should be talking to the board about as opposed to talking to management about. Increasingly, boards are actually reaching out to the shareholders uh, and speaking to them directly, the board's initiative. So that whole world of the relationship between the board and shareholders has really changed significantly. I don't know that it's particularly a legal liability issue. It's a dynamic issue in terms of the way governance is handled. There are other changes in the world of governance that I think audit committees and boards should pay particular attention to. One of them is the focus that we now have on term limits for directors. The issue revolves around how long someone can serve on a board and still really be considered to be independent of management. So at an extreme, you have had, we've had people who have served on a particular board for 30 years. Is that too long? There are, there are jurisdictions around the world that have said, look, if you've been on a board for 12 years, we're not telling you that you can't still serve, but we are saying we don't count you as independent. So that changes the whole dynamic on a board. So when you combine the issue of term limits with the issue we've had now since Enron about age limits, so we retire people off of boards when they're 70 and 72. If you're looking at having a director to serve on a board for nine years, for example, but they're going to have to get off when they're 70, we're we're shrinking the demographic from which we actually draw directors for the corporation. So all of this to say, I think we need to be rethinking the issue of age limit. If I can give you an example that doesn't necessarily work in my favor here, I would make the observation that the president-elect of the United States would not be eligible to serve on a Canadian board because he's over the age of 70. He's over the age of 70. The idea being that somebody who is over the age of 70 shouldn't serve on a board because they don't have the stamina or the focus. So that would have been, that would take out Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and whatever you think of their politics, stamma wasn't an issue for any of them. Supreme Court justices sit in Canada until they're 75, longer than that in the U.S. So the idea that someone who has reached the age of 70 or 72 or even 75 it no longer has something to contribute to a board, I, I think it's time to get past that. And just thought we've talked about, you know, age limits and some of those things. What about uh, the, the diversity of... Um uh, genders on boards. I mean, women on boards seems to be a uh, key emphasis of regulators to kind of promote that awareness. We have two issues when we're looking at 
at diversity, we first of all have the, the, the social policy issue of not wanting to keep from a significant, the majority actually of the population opportunities that are available to others. But if we just look at it from a board effectiveness perspective, I think most people would agree that having a diversity of perspectives around a boardroom table raises a different range of questions and a different range of solutions than you would get from a group that all comes from all cut out of one more. Absolutely. makes a more effective board. Exactly. And so women have a different experience in life than men do. Gays, lesbians, transgenders all have different. It's not, we're not looking for a woman's perspective or a gay perspective or a trans, transgender perspective. We're looking for a different perspective. Diversity. Yeah. A diverse perspective. And that's what we're trying to get at by, by opening up the boardroom to make sure that we've got um, perspectives being represented that might be more outside the mold, that would, would see issues a bit differently than, than boards might traditionally have seen in the past. So as we wrap up today's comments, uh, Carol, this has been fantastic. Could you just share with us perhaps some some parting words of advice for CPA members? Oh, interesting. What I would say to CPA members is go and sit on boards. It is, it's interesting work. It's important work. It's work that CPA members are actually uniquely skilled for because they see the entire range of problems within an organization. Auditors know a corporation better than any other outsider. So they get a business perspective when they're engaged with a corporation. Beyond that, though, after saying go and join a board, I would say get off the audit committee, at least for part of your engagements. Go and experience the HR committee and contribute your expertise to the HR committee. A lot of the executive compensation issues, most executive compensation issues are grounded in financial reporting. And so we need some of you to go and serve on that committee or on the governance committee or environmental health and safety. There are broader experiences and perspectives that CPA members can be bringing to the board and will actually enhance their experience of being on boards. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the CPA Success Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. To subscribe to the podcast, visit www.cpacanada forward slash podcast.